You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Well, good morning. Welcome to Redeemer Georgetown. It's good to be here worshiping with you this morning. You know, many years ago, I remember as a brand new Christian singing certain songs and in the middle of the song thinking, I wonder what the heck that means. Hosanna was one of them. We were singing Hosanna in the highest. And it sounded spiritual. It sounded good. I liked singing it, but I didn't know exactly what I was singing. The word Hosanna means save now. Save now. I need you now. In this moment, in this set of circumstances, save now. And so when we look at the words of Scripture, sometimes we're saying and we're agreeing with them, but we don't really know what they mean. Maybe you sang the song that says, here I raise my Ebenezer. And I'm like, is that a child named Ebenezer? What what is it we raise an Ebenezer? Well, an Ebenezer is a stone that you raise up, that you place there so that for generations you will say, this is a stone of remembrance so that I will remember what God did here in this situation. A couple of years ago, helping one of my kids with a theology project from school, uh, we were going through, and I was just enjoying that I knew the answer to every single question. I was thinking, man, I would smoke this without any problem. And as we were filling in the answers to these questions, it became very apparent to me that what we were doing was getting the right answer, missing the beautiful truth. Missing that these words like justification, these words like redemption, these words need unpacked. And rather than just get it right on a test or a project, God wants us to enjoy, taste, and see, and have that truth as more than an academic knowledge that we assent to, but a truth that unlocks joy in our soul. And so this morning, when we look at what is traditionally known as Palm Sunday, I want you to have a whole lot more than the word Hosanna as something that you sing and understand at an academic level. I want you to understand what they were saying and how he answered them. And so I want to give you a roadmap for how we're going to go through this uh, text, these 17 verses that are in front of us. In this chapter 21, the first five verses, we see Jesus interacting with his disciples, and there is a lot more there than just foreknowledge. There's a beautiful, grand truth about who he is that happens, and it gets lost in these first five verses. It won't get lost today by God's grace. In verses 6 through 11, we're going to find out what this call and this call of worship is, this act of worship, this shouting of Hosanna in the highest, we're going to find out what that really means. And then we're going to see in the verses 12 through 17 that the temple was meant to be a house of prayer, but it was also the heart of God. Now what I'm doing as a pastor here is I'm trying to get the opportunity to proclaim what is true, to ask God for the power to preach in a way that you will hear his voice. And I want you to pray that God would open your heart to understand the scriptures. 
Pastor Michael quotes this verse often, Luke 24, 45. It says, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is not a newspaper we're reading. It's not an article on the internet. This is the living, active word of God. And with God's help, he can open your mind to understand what he wants you to know from this passage. Let me pray. Father, we worship you and we love you. But our love is fickle. And our worship is fickle. We turn our love and our affection and our worship in a hundred different directions. And then we limp through life. God, open our minds to understand the scriptures. Teach us who you are. And by teaching us who you are, show us who we are. That we are the object of your love. That we're not tolerated by you. We are cherished, treasured by you. I pray that that truth, along with the truth of who you are, that that would not only give us a great peace in our soul this morning, but that it would propel us forward with energy, with joy, with strength to say to the world, how great is our God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first few verses that I just read, Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. He is five days away from the cross. He is seven days away from the resurrection. And so, well, eight days, he's eight days away from that. And so, if you see this right, you will see that Jesus is very intensely focused on everything that is happening. Everything is very intentional. He is laser focused on heading to the cross where he will lay down his life as a, the final sacrifice for the sin of mankind. And in the midst of that, he is fulfilling prophecy from the Old Testament. Namely, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 that describes how the king will come and present himself as the Messiah of Israel. He will come riding on a donkey. And he will present himself as Messiah. And there's a couple of things that he does because this is his will that he is accomplishing that I want to point to and I want to help you see and understand as beautiful in this text. In fact, so familiar to us that sometimes we miss it. He tells some of the disciples, he tells a couple of them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and they will send, he will send them at once. And all of this took place so that the prophecy could be fulfilled both from Isaiah 62 and Zechariah chapter 9 that describes Jesus coming on a donkey. Now he didn't come into Jerusalem on a white stallion. That's how a conquering Roman general would come. Jesus does not come in that way. He comes humble, lowly. This is how he will approach in his first incarnation. In his second incarnation, it's going to look radically different. He is coming as a sacrificial lamb, the final sacrifice. And it says that the disciples had gone on in front of Jesus just as he had directed and they found everything to be exactly as he said it would be. 
Now, I want you to see this. Jesus is doing two things in particular that kind of get lost. He is speaking of the future, the near future, as if he is watching it in that very moment, as if he's already there. It's the equivalent for me to say to one of you, I forgot something I need. Uh, this morning, Zach, would you be willing to get in your car, go to my house, and as you go to the garage, here's the code you punch in, and when you go in, turn to the right, move towards the front of the house, you'll see my office on the left-hand side. When you open my office doors and you walk in, turn to the right, you'll see my desk. On either side of my desk is a cabinet. Go to the one on the right, open the second drawer, and there you will find... My glasses, my Bible, my whatever. Now, Zach, if he did that, as he was walking through that, he would say, this is exactly like he said it would be. And, and if the neighbors don't know who I am as I'm punching in this garage code, what I will say in response to them going, hey, who are you? What are you doing? All I've got to say is, well, Robert sent me, he needed something. And that unlocks every door, that, that opens it all. Why? Because I own the house. I've been to the house. I've seen where things are organized. Jesus is, is speaking to the disciples about the near future as if he's standing in it because he is. This foreknowledge is beautiful because Jesus knows what's right around the corner and he's gone ahead of them and he's gone ahead of you. But it's more than foreknowledge. It's also provision. It's more than sovereignty. When you see Jesus speaking of the future with such ownership, with such clarity, it's because he's sovereign. He is the Lord of all creation. He's not limited like we are. He sees it because he's in it. And he understands it. He's been there ahead of you. Jesus before you. Jesus behind you. Jesus within you. Jesus all around you. Do you see how that brings a level of calm to your now? Let me tell you why some of you are anxious this morning. And I say this because I know me. <laughs> You're anxious because you've got a small view of God. You don't see him. You sing about his sovereignty. I do too. We just don't live like it was true. Well, watch and see how it's more than just sovereignty. It's also in that sovereignty, it's provision. He says, when you get there, you're going to find a donkey and a young male foal that's never been ridden on, that's unbroken, and you're going to find them, and you're going to untie them. And if anybody says anything to you, you just tell them, I needed it. And immediately, they'll let it go. There were some guys in Dallas at Watermark Church. They said, I wonder what would happen if we just showed up like at a dealership, car dealership, and we just found a car and got the keys and started to drive off. What would happen? So they videoed the whole thing. And when they stopped them, they said, well, Jesus needs this car for a few hours. <laughs> they just put it to the test. Didn't go very well. But let's just imagine this. 
These disciples are told, you're gonna go into the village. Here in about an hour, you're going to encounter this. It's going to be just like I said. And when you get there, here's what you need to do. Just say that the master needs it and they will turn it loose. See, if Jesus has been prophesied to ride into Jerusalem 483 years to the day before he shows up on that, if this is Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled, the sovereign Lord of the universe not only sees it, he provides for it. He provides for it. This was his will, this was his plan, and so he's gone ahead of them and he's provided everything he needs. But it's gonna take faith for those who follow him to take those steps and move forward. See, it's one thing for me to say to Zach, would you be going, willing to go fetch my Bible for me and go bring it? It's another thing if I said something like this, hey Zach, before you ever get to my house, right by the clubhouse, there's a big brick house, red brick house. If the garage is open, just go on in there and see if the keys are in the car and bring the car. And see, that's a whole different thing, right? I mean, it's one thing for me to say, go into my house, grab that. It's another thing for me to say, just go and look for an open garage in this house that's right next to the clubhouse. Get in the car, drive it here. Because those people don't know me. Those people don't have any sense of why I should have any claim on their car. Yeah, but the Lord does. What he's doing is he's demonstrating not only his foreknowledge and his sovereignty, he's demonstrating that he's the one who has paid the bill. He's the one that's gone ahead and said, if I call you into this, I will provide what you need. Now, friends, listen closely to me for a second. I think I've learned and forgotten and relearned this truth over and over in my uh, years as a Christian. And here's what it is. We tend to see God through a straw. You know? Everything you're seeing is true, but it's just so limited. You're seeing things about God, but you're seeing him through a straw. And the Lord would have us see him as grand, as large, as sovereign, as providing, as generous, as kind, as the one who has ownership over all things. And if he goes ahead of you and he starts opening doors, no one can shut them. And here's the truth that I think is the thing that I have learned and forgotten over and over again and learned again is this, that when I have the view of God as big, sovereign, grand, uh, the Lord of all creation, when I have that view, it equals in my soul heart rest. It's what Pastor Michael read this morning, right? But when I get a small God, oh man, when I get the view of God that he's little bitty and distant and not that concerned, but my problems are just big and I meditate on them and I think about worst case scenarios, man, I have no heart rest. I'm anxious. I've got to fix this. I've got to move this. I've got to change this. I've got to manipulate this. I've got to buy that. And so friends, I, I just want you to hear this this is how Daniel describes God in Daniel chapter two, chapter two, verses 20 through 22. Daniel says this, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. 
He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise. He gives knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. In Daniel chapter 4, Daniel's one of my favorite Old Testament personalities. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, who was a certified nut, a conquering warrior king who had destroyed many nations and taken captives, and he comes to faith through a brokenness that God gives him. And at the end of that, in his humility, he says this, at the end of the days, uh, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation to all inhabitants of the earth. We are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say, can say to him or stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, do you see what's happening? When Jesus sends the the disciples ahead, and he says, this is gonna happen like I said. By the way, everything that he said for the future is gonna happen just like he said. It's gonna take faith in the midst of circumstances that look bleak to believe that, but what he said will happen is going to happen. And as they see that unfolding, what's happening in their souls? They start to see a bigger view of God, a bigger view of Jesus, Psalm 115, verse 3, we quote it often, but it's such a beautiful verse. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. J. Vernon McGee, southern preacher, he said it like this. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he wants. There's nothing that's going to stop him. Nobody's saying, hey, what are you doing with that? No, our master needs it. Okay. <laughs> so, Friends, can I just encourage you to consider the thing that scares you right now, the thing that upsets your soul? If you meditate on it, if you give your full attention to it, you're gonna end up anxious, unable to sleep at night. In fact, it won't stop there. You'll start accusing God of not being kind, not being considerate, doesn't care about your life, doesn't, doesn't matter you're gonna to start to see God wrong. And when you see God wrong, you're gonna see everything wrong. You're gonna see yourself wrong. You're gonna see people wrong. So there's something wonderful about Jesus saying to the 12, I'm going in front of you and I'm providing because I own it all. Now go and do as I said because you believe that. Well, that's what prompts the next passage that happens here. The disciples went and did as Jesus had said, as, as, as he directed them. And they brought the donkey, the colt, and they put on, the, on the, their cloaks, and he sat on them. And the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. And the crowd that went before him 
and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, is, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When the crowd entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You have to picture this, okay? Now here in about a year, I'm going to be leading a trip over to Israel, and we will walk down the exact path that Jesus took from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. It's very steep. There was a woman who was with us, Jay Thompson, the wife of our offsite elder, Victor Thompson, and she had a, a knee injury going. And so on these certain parts, as you're coming down these steep embankments, we'd be one on each side of her, just kind of walking with her arm in arm so she could get down it. And as they see this, they see Jesus, and you have to picture in your mind's eye that the disciples are pretty pumped about this. The crowd is excited about this. There's one guy in particular who's excited about this. His name is Judas. Because, see, in their minds, we're going into Jerusalem. And I know what this man has done, raising the dead. I've seen him raise Lazarus. I've seen him feed multitudes. I've seen him cast out demons. I've seen him walk on water. I've seen all that. And I know that him coming into Jerusalem means we're about to see him wipe out out the Romans. This is Messiah. And in that vision of Jesus, and, and I think movies always get this wrong. They always show Jesus coming into Jerusalem and everybody's shouting, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. And they show Jesus smiling and waving like he was showing up at the Oscars. And that is absolutely not the expression on Jesus's face. Because he has just wept over Jerusalem, knowing that he is coming as their king to present himself as the sacrificial king who will die for their sins. And they will absolutely, within a week, be screaming for his blood. And so he's not receiving adulations with smiles. He's on the back of a donkey that's never been ridden. Cloaks on that donkey I like to imagine from that point on, whatever stall that donkey found himself in, all the other donkeys said, hey man, there he is. That's the one that carried Jesus. And he's like, yep, yep. I mean, I was, never had anybody on my back before, but man, I was, I was taking small steps and I, yep, I carried, his proudest moment of his life was carrying Jesus down through that valley up into Jerusalem. And everybody's shouting and everybody happy. And what do they start to say? Hosanna. Save now. Save now. In the highest possible way, save now. It, it's really a prayer as much as it is a, a proclamation of worship. It is, God, we want you to glorify yourself, but we see him, Jesus, as Messiah, and we want him to save now. In the highest magnitude, save now. What did they think they were saying? I mean, we have the benefit of the book, right? And, and even a lot of us who have walked with the Lord are like, we didn't know what Hosanna meant saved now. We kind of knew that, maybe knew that, didn't know that at all. But it means save now. And I think in their first century Jewish minds, including the 12, what they meant is, we want you to save us from the Romans. We want you to bring in the kingdom. 
my greatest felt need in this moment, the agenda that flows out of that felt need, my expectation and my agenda for you, Jesus, is that you would come in like Joshua or David and you would give us the kingdom, meaning get rid of these guys. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. That's what I need from you. And if you will do that, man, I have no problem laying down my coat. I have no problem going and getting a branch because in my realized vision of what I want you to do and what I expect you to do, this act of crying out and laying down a coat or a cloak and laying down a branch, this is easy for me because you're about to give me what I've wanted to for so long. Time out, time out. I'm not gonna let you get out of this or me get out of this. Have you ever been disappointed with him? You ever lifted up a prayer that sounds like this? I want you to fix this now. I want you, because you're the Messiah, you're the Savior, I want you to do this. You ever been there and found out that his answer to your Hosanna prayer was met with something of indifference, met with something of, no, you're not going to do this? Why are you not doing? Their need in front of them is clear. You, you need to get rid of the Romans. You know, there was a interview with John MacArthur and Ben Shapiro. You can watch it on YouTube. It's very fascinating. Ben Shapiro is a very intelligent Jewish man. I, I love the guy, honestly. And I love John MacArthur. And as they were talking, Ben Shapiro, who's an Orthodox Jew, a practicing Jew, uh, he said, you know why we didn't receive Jesus as our Messiah, right? And MacArthur knew the answer. He said, I know the answer. You tell me why you think. And he said, well, because he died. He didn't deliver us from Rome. He died. He was a disappointment to his generation. He goes in there and doesn't get rid of the Romans. He just dies. And, and so that's why we don't accept him as Messiah. He didn't do what we were anticipating that he would do. And listen, I want you to hear this. Because I think through this whole series, we've seen this over and over again, that when Jesus comes to encounter people and interact with people, a lot of times they've got this view of him, and then they walk away with this view of him, right? They're, they're aiming too low. They see him partly accurately, like through a straw. They see something, but they don't see the picture of who he really is. And so Hosanna, save now, could be aiming at something really small when Jesus knows and understands that there is a greater need at work here. First, I want to also tell you this. If you're disoriented by your Hosanna prayer, not getting the response you hoped, if you've lifted up a prayer that sounded like this, God, I need you right now, and I need your help right now. I need you to do something for me now. I need you to do this. It's your agenda. It's your expectation. And you found yourself going, he just didn't do it. You're not alone. That's disorienting. That's discouraging. But it doesn't have to be lonely. See, 
Even John the Baptist, when he was in prison, he said to his disciples, go to Jesus and ask him, are you the one or should we expect someone else? He was disoriented. He didn't expect to be sitting in this spot because I, my whole ministry was to point out the one who is the Messiah. And now in the midst of his circumstances, he's got one question. Are you who I thought you were? Are you going to do this or do I need to look somewhere else? Friends, that's a hard spot to be in. When you have believed in him, you've looked to him, and you find yourself going, I just can't line that up. I've trusted you, I've believed you, and, and, and these circumstances don't fit. Well, John the Baptist was there. Job was there. And Job cried out after showing signs of faith in Job 1 and 2. Job chapter 3, he just falls apart. He's still clinging to God, but he is letting it fly, baby. He's disoriented. He's confused. He's discouraged. God is at work in the middle of the chaos in ways we can't imagine. We used to sing the song at the source that he is sovereign over us, even what the enemy meant for evil. You'll work it for our good. You know that one, Drew? No? Yeah, even in the valley, you are faithful. You're working for my good. See, what they don't understand is your greatest need is not the Romans to be gone. You need something bigger. You need something better. You can't see it from where you're sitting. I know you're discouraged. I know that you're frustrated. I know you feel like God did not deliver. That's exactly how they're gonna feel, and it's exactly why they're gonna reject him and call out for his blood. But let me tell you something Jesus is at work in ways that we could not possibly understand, and sometimes that is going to be very hard for us to accept in the midst of the storm. Watch and see what he does next, because it's chronological, this whole thing. There's a reason that the pattern falls like it does. It says that Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all those who sold and bought in the temple, he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, do you hear what, they, what these are saying? And he said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city, and he lodged in Bethany. You know, several years ago, when I was in a hospital room with a friend of mine, Randy Kolb, Randy was dying of lung cancer. Randy couldn't have been, what was he, Michael? 50-something, maybe, young 60, I don't know, not very old. And Randy was the most incredible guitar player outside of present company. I mean, he, he was great. He was an amazing guitar player. And as he was getting this medication, his hand swelled up. And we, we asked the doctor at the time, me and his family, like, what, can you do anything about the swelling in his hand? I mean, it's like so, he can't even move his fingers. And the doctor said, I, 
I could probably do something to make that swelling go down. That's not what he needs. I'm sorry that he can't even hold a guitar right now. He needs this medication. And his hand's gonna have to swell to get to it. When I look at Jesus coming into Jerusalem, I can almost hear them saying, wait, wait, Jesus, if you wanna take on a fight, don't take on the Sanhedrin, take on Rome. What are you doing? Because Jesus comes into the temple and he sees that it is a marketplace and lots of money is changing hands. It's almost Passover. Jerusalem is filled normally at this time with 250,000 people. At Passover, close to 3 million people coming from all around the nation. And they didn't want to bring with them their livestock. They didn't want to bring with them their sacrificial lamb. They had to bring in money to buy from those who could say this is a qualified lamb because not all lambs would be accepted by the priest for sacrifice. And so you had to get there. You had to exchange your money for Jerusalem money. And that was also marked up about 8%. And so your money had to be changed for this money. And then you had to buy one of their lambs or their pigeons. If you were really poor, that's what the poor could afford for sacrifice was these pigeons. And Jesus saw this, that what was happening is some poor man or woman, some uh, family comes from the southern part of Israel. They've got barely enough money to get there. They get there getting taken advantage of. And all they want to do is worship God. They want to come there and they want to sacrifice and worship and connect with God. And they're being met with somebody who said something like this. If you want to worship God, you've got to have to pay up. Now, let's have your money. You want to worship God? You have to go through me. And so what does Jesus do? He comes in. Now, remember, there's three million people. The temple is the place they're most looking to go. He comes in. And a fire ignites in his soul. This is not the first time he's done this. He did this at the front end of his ministry, and now he's doing it again, one week before his crucifixion. He comes in, and he just absolutely starts flipping tables over. He makes a whip from all of those ropes that people had used to drag an animal from one place to another. He just grabs a handful of them, and he starts thrashing the place. There is a temple guard of 300 men who could have stopped him, but they just ran also. They got out of his way. He is the exact image of the invisible God. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. This is Jesus showing you exactly what is in the heart of the Father. The temple was supposed to be there so that people could come and worship and connect with God. And they've turned it into a brothel of business. So what's most important here? These people that are shouting Hosanna really want a transaction with him. They want to lay down their coat because he's about to give them something. They're going to change that. They're going to exchange their worship for their freedom from Rome. And Jesus says, no, we got a bigger problem happening here. And let me tell you where it is. It's right here in this temple. Because these people that are making a mockery of the house of God are saying, if you'll just give your money, you can then have God. 
That's the pathway you're going to have to go, this transaction of money for worship. If you'll follow this out, you'll be able to come into the temple and you can connect with God. And Jesus says, not on my watch. And he drives them out. Jesus, with such powerful emotion and anger, flipping over tables and saying, no, this is supposed to be a place where people can come and pray. Supposed to be a house of prayer. This place is not supposed to be a place where you change money for favor with God. This is supposed to be a place where any penitent person can come and worship God. You've turned it into a business. And that is sin. And that is something that I will not have. And so he flips over these tables and he starts driving people out. And you can see the 12 going, ah, all I really wanted you to do was get rid of Rome. I mean, that's my agenda. You seem to have your own. <laughs> yes, he does. Because what? Because he sees so much more than what we can see. See, in your life and in mine, sometimes our agenda is so clear to us that we want him to do this. And he says, you know, you can't see that there's a bigger problem here, but I can. And because I love you, because you, friend, if you've believed in Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, hear this. It says, do you not know that you are the temple of God? That the spirit of God dwells in you? Right? You have become, as a believer in Christ, the temple of God. And that he will be forever purging and clarifying that he is not contractual. That Christ has died to pay the penalty for your sins. And you are not going to exchange with him good money or work or effort so that he can be pleased with you. Jesus has already done that. He is the final sacrifice for us. He has made a way for us to have fellowship with God and it's not contractual. And his agenda will be forever to shape Jesus in us until we come home and then we are in his presence fully like him. God is going to use the suffering and difficulties of this life to draw you deeper into him, to creating you a greater hunger and trust and love for him. And he's not going to do it through exchanges. He's not going to be contractual. When you cry out, Hosanna, when you cry out and say, I need you now, God. I need your help right now in the middle of this. God is not going to trade with you. He's not going to say, okay, well, if you will start doing X, Y, and Z, I'll start being your Messiah. He's going to point right to the deep, real problem in your soul, and he's going to cleanse and shape Jesus in you over and over again. Christ has paid the full debt, and we have been set apart in him, and we are forever, until the day that we come home, we are continually being sanctified and made into the image of Christ. Prayer is the heart of God. Why? I mean, what? 
Jesus, why are you going in there upsetting all those people in the temple? Ah, because they had missed something. They, they had started to form contractual relationships with the people of Israel rather than worship. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a place where people come to meet with God. Friends, I want you to hear this. God calls us into prayer, and he calls the nation of Israel into prayer because he didn't just want to have an exchange of goods with us. He wanted us to have him. He wanted us to have him. And as we turn to him and as we look to him in prayer, we find something so much greater than transaction. We find relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so I'm inviting you to hold up no longer a little tiny straw and say, God, I know what I want and I know what you need to do for me. Put that away. Save now, you define it, Lord. You define how you will work in my life, how you will shape Christ in me. If I have become transactional with you, where I will worship you if you'll do what I want, God, remove that from my life. Help me to walk with you by grace through Christ. That's what he's calling us into. How do we know that? We know that because of the table. We know that because in the bread and the cup, we have an, an invitation to come to him. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to have great merit. You have to have need. And as you come to him in your brokenness and say to him, I need you, he will give you grace for forgiveness. If you've trusted him already, he will remind you of that through the table. And so what I want you to do is I want you to take a moment and I want you to pray about what you've heard here this morning. I want you to invite God to cleanse the temple again. The temple that is your life. He sees the greater need in your life. Let him continually point out to you the things that are not like Christ that he might overturn those things in your life. Scatter those things in your life and replace them with Jesus. Let's pray.